My name is TJ. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us as we're in the second week of this series called Grow a Pair. And this series has all been, been about how do we define biblical manhood? How do we define biblical womanhood? What does that look like in today's context? And we started out last week by looking at a verse in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 13, and it, it taught, or it, actually chapter 16, and it says this. It says, the Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we started out by reading this verse because it was, it was talking actually about a guy named King David. It was talking about the fact that Saul had lost the favor of God on his life. And, and God, after Saul had lost that favor of being king of Israel, he was looking for somebody whose heart was completely devoted to him. He was looking for somebody that, that didn't have all the physical things that normally we would look at because what we define manhood by a lot of times in this life is, is you know, the size of the bank account, the list of accomplishments, the amount of things that are on our resume, and maybe by the strength we have, how much we deadlift or how much we bench press. And we look at people and we say, oh, that's, that's a real man there because of all those physical attributes. And those, phys- those physical attributes are important, but they're not the most important thing. In fact, God is looking for something that is completely different. He's looking not at the outward circumstances. He's looking at some inward things that we call character. He's looking for characteristics in our lives. And, and in particular, he's looking for characteristics that come in pairs that when they are balanced out amongst one another, make us powerful in our fellowship and our relationship with God. And today we're going to be looking at a, another person. Last week we looked at this whole idea of we've got to be, have the identity of, of Christ in our lives. We've got to figure out our identity. We've got to discover whose we are because whose we are is going to determine our worth and our value. And if we're finding our worth and our value in the wrong places, then eventually we're going to have a wrong um, integrity in our lives because we'll be trying to be a whole bunch of things that we're not. And we can only be one person in life. We can't be a whole bunch of different people. And so it's very, very important for us to figure out the identity of Christ in our lives so that way we can be the person that God has called us to be. Today we're going to look at uh, another person. Last week we looked at some stories. This week we're going to look at two stories. One, one story you probably know pretty well. It's based on a guy named King David, and most of us have heard about him. And we're going to look at another story of a guy named Heath, who probably most of you guys don't know. And so I want to start off today by reading a verse out of 1 Samuel 13, 14. And uh, this is what it says, and it's talking about King David. It says, But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. And, and right away we see that this is in reference to David. And David was a guy that God said was a man after his own heart. All throughout the New Testament, there's tons of references to David about how the fact that he was a man after God's own heart. Now the interesting thing about David and the fact that he was a man after God's own heart was the fact that David did a lot of incredible things in life. David had a list of accomplishments that would probably rival most in the Bible. But yet, at the same point, he made some pretty big mistakes in life. Anybody out there ever made a mistake? Show of hands. Like half of us. The rest of y'all, you just made your mistake. You're a liar, okay? Uh, Like, we just figured out your mistake. You're a liar, okay? And probably this isn't the best place to lie because this is a church. And you can get, like, struck from heaven or something. So, like, let's try this one more time. How many of us have made a mistake before? 
vast majority, okay, good, a higher percentage now. If you haven't made a mistake, you're Jesus, okay? And I don't think he's in this place. So David, David was a lot like us. He made some mistakes in life, along with all the accomplishments. He did some things that were pretty detrimental as well. And we're going to take a look at one of those. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can look in your worship guide, or you can just follow along on the screen. And we're going to be looking at a story uh, about David. And, and what you got to understand about David is David was a shepherd boy who eventually rose in prominence and eventually became the king of Israel. He, he built one of the most powerful armies. He reunited all of, all of the Israelites and all the Jewish people together and was just, he was a hero among the people. And so he's, he's pretty much dominated everybody at this point. And it's that time of the year when the, the, the Israelites go off the battle. And so that's where we pick up the story in 2 Samuel Chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And so right away we see this thing in David's life. And, and, and this is what I found in my life as well, is that David, there was a place where David was supposed to be. And David, instead of being in the place where he, he was supposed to be, chose to be in a place that was more comfortable, that was a little bit easier, that didn't have as much demand on his life. Anybody ever been in those kind of places? Like, we know we're supposed to go do something, but yet at the same time, the place where we're in is so comfortable that we're like, we'll just leave that to some other people. And that's exactly where David found himself. And it goes on to say, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, I think this is pretty interesting, because here's David. He's not where he's supposed to be, and, and I don't know about you, but when I'm not where I'm supposed to be, that's usually where I end up making the biggest mistakes, because my guard is down. I'm in a comfortable position. This is exactly where David finds himself. And so he sees this really, really hot woman, and he says, man, I want to find out what's her numbers. Like, get me her digits. Find out everything you can about her. And so his boy goes out and finds out everything he can, and he comes back. He goes, whoa, 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 David. Like, that girl's hot, but I want you to know something. That is Uriah's wife, and you got to understand who Uriah was to David. David, Uriah to David was like, that was one of his best friends. It talks about all throughout the Old Testament that David had this group that he called his mighty men. These were the guys that blessed with him in battle. These were the guys that had his back in any situation. These were some of his closest friends. And so this guy is coming back and saying, listen, that's one of your closest friend's wife. And here's David's response, being in the wrong place that he was. He said, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home and the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. When David wasn't where he was supposed to be, he made some decisions in life that impacted his life greatly. And David is just like you and I. When, when I make a mistake in life, when I mess up in life, my first initial reaction, I don't know about you guys, is to try to fix the situation. Anybody else out there like that? I'm a guy. I like to fix things. Guys, we like to fix problems. Women, if you come home and you tell us your problem, I'm not listening to your problem. I'm listening to how can I fix your problem. And so David hears this problem. Like Bathsheba sends word, like, I'm pregnant. David goes, I got this. I'm going to fix it. And so he comes up with this plan. He says, I'm going to bring Uriah back, and I'm going to have him go home so he sleeps with his wife and he'll think he got her pregnant problem solved 
Except when Uriah came back, Uriah wouldn't sleep with his wife because the rest of the, the, the king's men were in battle. And so he's like, oh, snap, what am I going to do? And so the next thing he does is he says, man, I'm, I'm going to try a different methodology. I'm going to get him drunk. Like probably not the best decision, but he says like he'll get drunk and he'll go home and sleep with his wife. And so he gets him drunk and Uriah still has all of this honor and says, man, I'm not going to do that. And sleeps at the doorstep of the king and and. And so David's a little bit frustrated, and so because he can't fix his problem, he decides, man, I'm going to cover my problem up. Like, I'm going to try to make it disappear. I'm going to try to make it slide away. And so what he does is he sends Uriah back to the military front lines, and with him he sends a scroll. And in that scroll it says, listen, put Uriah on the front line in the fiercest battle there possibly is. And when you're in the fiercest battle, pull everybody back and let them kill Uriah. And so that's exactly what they do, and Uriah is murdered. And David thinks, like, I got this now, and he marries Bathsheba, and everything's going to be fine. He thinks that, man, I can get away with what I've done. It doesn't matter that I made a mistake. I'm going to cover it up, and nobody is ever going to know. Nobody's ever going to recognize it, except he has a pretty good friend named Nathan. And Nathan comes to this realization that the timeline's not quite adding up for everything to work out. And so he comes, and he, he confronts David. And, and in that moment of confrontation, he doesn't co- confront him directly. He confronts him indirectly, and he tells him a story. He says, listen, there's a guy that's in this city, and he is faithful servant, and he, all that he has in his life is his family. All he has is his wife, and his wife is beautiful. And somebody that is wealthier, that has everything in the world, comes along and takes the one thing that he has. And this fires David up. David's like, man, I'm about to beat that brother down. And so, like, he is, he is ready to go stomp him down. He's going to give him some curbings, some beat downs. And, and David's like, let me out of it. And Nathan's like, that's you, bro. That's you. Because the person that had nothing but yet served faithfully was your boy Uriah. And you're the man that has everything in this world. You're the king of the nation of Israel, and you're, we're on the top of the totem pole right now. And you took the one thing that he had for yourself because you wanted it, and it was wrong. And Nathan, and David responds right there and admits this in 2 Samuel 12, 13. He says, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. And as we're, we're in this series and we're trying to land on this definition of biblical manhood, if we're trying to land on this definition of biblical womanhood, David's response, we find one of the characteristics that we have to have in our life if we are going to have these pairs, and one of those characteristics is humility. One of those characteristics that we have got to have as men and women of God is humility. Because a lot of us, we might know our true identity. We might, we might be living a life of integrity. We might be strong and have all this strength in our life. And, and we might uh, be making some wise decisions. But this is what I know about all of us. At some point in all of our lives, we're going to mess things up. And when we mess things up, what are we going to do in those moments? Because all of us are going to mess up because none of us is Jesus. And so that means that sin is going to be prevalent in our lives. That doesn't give us a a freedom to go and sin all we want. That's not what I'm talking about. But what it does mean is, is, is it means what do we do when we jack things up in our lives? How do we respond to the mistakes that we make? And I love David's response here because David doesn't do what we would normally do. We would to- typically get defensive and we would, we would justify why we did what we did. But David doesn't do that. 
He doesn't get defensive. He doesn't justify his actions. He doesn't try to come up with, well, here's why, and here's what was happening, and, and, and doesn't try to explain himself out of the situation. David mans up and says, man, I'm responsible. I made that choice. It was the wrong choice, and now I've got to deal with the consequences of that choice. And throughout this time, if you were to look in the book of Psalms, which is all written by David, you would see psalm after psalm of him saying, man, I'm contrite in heart. I'm broken in spirit. God, I regret my decisions. God, forgive me of what I've done. Because David had this position of humility in his life. And humility is the first of the missing pairs that we're talking about today that we have got to have in our life. And humility is not the equivalent of humiliation. We're not asking you to be humiliated. Humility is the opposite of arrogance. It's saying like, you know what? I'm going to take ownership of what I've done and how I've done it. And humility is really owning your sin. And sin is basically a word that means you've missed the mark in life. And when we miss the mark in life, what we've got to do is we've got to take ownership of how we miss the mark. We can't blame other people. We can't try to push that off on others. We can't try to justify our position. We have got to own that choice. And this is what I think about all the time because I think about the fact that David was defined as a man after God's own heart. And I think when when God was looking at David when he was just a shepherd boy and saying, you know what, he's a man that's after my own heart. He knew exactly that one day he would make this mistake with Bathsheba, that he would go and he would do these things and he would murder Uriah, and yet he said, man, David is a man after my own heart. And I think the reason God said that is because when David recognized his mistakes, he came humbly before the Lord. And if you and I, when we make mistakes, we'll come humbly before and say, man, this is where I jacked it up. This is where I messed up. This is where I missed the mark. It changes everything. And for guys, that's a difficult proposition. Like, we don't ever like to be wrong. We have a lot of pride. We have a lot of arrogance. But if we're going to truly grow these pairs in our lives, one of those things has got to be humility. And so my question that I have to ask all of us, and myself included, is, is are you humble? When you look in the mirror, are you willing to admit the mistakes that you're making? Not only are you willing to admit the mistakes that you're making, what are you willing to do about those mistakes? What are you willing to change in those situations? Because this is what I know. We're all going to make mistakes. And Basically, we have, we have a couple of options when we make those mistakes. Some of us, one of the options that we take is we live in this idea of bad grace where uh, we have this, this thought that um, I can do anything I want because God will forgive me. And so I'm going to continue to make mistake after mistake after mistake because God will forgive me and he will forgive me and he will forgive me. And so I'm just going to continue this, this pattern of life. Then the other side of that is, is, is bad guilt where we say what we've done is so bad that no one could forgive me and that no one could ever accept me, that no one could ever love me, and we live in that. But yet I think that there's a third aspect that we need to take on instead of living with those things is we need to go and we need to become teachable. And being teachable is not learning a lesson from the things that we've done. It's changing our life based on what's happened. It's learning from that process and making our lives better. And today we're going to look at another story of a man who decided to change his life and make it better after some mistakes that were about to be made in his life. Take a look at the screen. I wake up every morning and the first thing I do is go run. That's my me time. Along the hours... Through the marathons, 
across the miles, he always returns to the letter. Dear Paisley, I wanted to take a second to let you know about the emotional roller coaster you put me through for the past two years. The letter is a confession to a person who's never read it, the person he tried to run from and now runs toward. I was afraid you would someday find out how scared and selfish I used to be. The more I thought about it, the more I decided that I want you to know the truth. He wanted to be perfect, and he was going to make sure that nothing his, he did stood in the way. This was not who he was supposed to be. This was not the family he was supposed to have. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't right. Growing up in East Texas, Heath White knew one thing, success. A standout athlete and top student graduating third in his class, he earned a scholarship to Northwestern State in central Louisiana. There he started running and continued succeeding in just about everything. What grades did you pull there? 4.0. After graduation, I went to law school for a semester and uh, then I got accepted into uh, pilot training at the U.S. Air Force. Grew up watching Top Gun, so you know, I wanted to be Maverick. He didn't know what it was, but he's always felt like there was something really special meant for just him to accomplish in his life. Heath and Jennifer White were married April 7, 2000. Four years into their marriage, the Whites were expecting their first child. In his mind, what was your child to be like? Perfect, like he was. He would, they would be smart, because how could they not be? We were both college graduates. They would be perfect. Hepper White was born May 2005, a healthy baby girl. A year later, the Whites were expecting again. Prenatal tests showed their baby would have Down syndrome a condition caused by an extra chromosome that delays and limits the ways a child develops, both physically and mentally. What was your fear? That he would leave. That he would just run away. Worse than that, I knew that he would probably want me to abort her. Um, because I knew that his convictions on that were not as strong as mine. I, uh, I did everything I could to try and force her into having an abortion. My main concern was what people would think about me, you know, as a, you know, you know, man, a pilot, or, you know, Air Force officer, whatever, you know, that, um, you know, what weakness inside me, you know, caused that. I've got genetically superior genes. I'm a winner with winner's blood. Learning you're going to have a child with Downs is like experiencing a death. That's what I felt like, like I was getting a broken baby. All I could think was, why me? I mean, I, I love this man more than life itself. So I had to think, what if? What if I aborted her? What if I got rid of her? And I remember a little voice in my head saying, no way, it's not happening. No way. She couldn't, she couldn't do it. 
basically that, you know, get on board or, or don't. Paisley White was born on March 16, 2007. For Heath, who stopped running competitively at that time, acceptance took several months. The turning point, I had her down and I tickled her and uh, she laughed and giggled at me and tried to push me away. And her laughing and smiling and reacting with me, you know, that's when I realized that she's just like any other kid. She's my kid. The change came partially in an idea, a way to show the world his new daughter and find his place beside her. Heath began to run again, this time pushing Paisley. Why did you want to do it? To let everybody see that I was proud of her. Nobody knew, you know, the way I felt before she was born. And if I can keep one family, one person from having to live with the guilt and almost making the mistake that I almost made, it's gonna be worth the pain that, that Paisley will feel later in life knowing the way I felt. March 2nd, 2008, just before Paisley's first birthday, they ran their first marathon in Little Rock. I remember buckling her in she was so little and we had her all bundled up and she was flopping all around in there. We were probably um, 100 yards from the finish line and he saw us and he stopped and we were like, what are you doing? And he said, I'm gonna walk her across the finish line. It was just me and her. There was nothing between us. Looking back on the pictures of, you know, running with her, that's a, you know, good memory. That finish was just a beginning. Heath continued to run races with his daughter, but wanted another way to show his pride in her, this time permanently. One of the first things someone sees when they look at Paisley is Down syndrome. And I want it to be one of the first things you see when you see me. Over the next four years, finding time away from his work as an FBI agent, Heath ran more and more races with Paisley. 5Ks, 10Ks, nine more marathons. Initially, Heath had said, I don't want to take care of somebody for the rest of my life. I think now he looks at it and says, oh my goodness, I may not get to take care of her the rest of her life. Hey, buddy. Over the couple of years, we'd become a team. Can I have a kiss? I love you. Everything I've done, everything I've tried to accomplish, it was never going to be perfect. But my love for Paisley is perfect. I'm always going to be there to make sure she gets to the finish line. Before you were born, I only worried about how your disability reflected on me. Now, there's no better mirror in the world. You're my light in the dark, and it's a privilege to be your dad. Love always, Daddy. Yeah. What, what most people don't know is that that is a, a story on ESPN, YouTube, that's 
a million something plays right now on YouTube. Who knows how many plays on uh, ESPN? But but Heath is part of Coastal. Uh, Heath has been attending Coastal for um, <laughs> a, a little while now, and and today is actually a, a pretty significant day. And I asked Heath to come and share with me a little bit about teachability. And and today, why why is today so significant, Heath? Today is Paisley's seventh birthday. Yeah. You're good. And so that, that's a pretty, pretty significant day um, today in the fact. In fact, she came to church this morning. She has a big seven on her shirt at the other campus. And so she's really excited to tell everybody she's seven years old. So, <laughs> um, but I just wanted to take some time and just, and just talk with Heath about some of the things that he's gone through. Because I think some of the things that he's gone through are some things that we can learn from. It's about this whole idea of humility and teachability. And so, so Heath, talk to me a little bit about you know, this desire to be the best at everything and this, you know, just always wanting to, to be number one. Yeah. Uh, I guess the biggest thing is that I don't know what a, a 95 or a 92% output level is. You know, if, uh, if a hammer will do good, then you should probably use a sledgehammer. <laughs> um, so I always went above and, and beyond, and, you know, I've had that desire to, to please, uh, to earn, uh, someone's love, and, and I know uh, that it's not through through deeds, but through faith, uh, but uh, it still transitions a little bit into my relationship with God, um, that, you know, I, I know he, he loves me, but uh, it w- it's not going to hurt if I uh, I try and be a better person and and, uh, and do some accomplishments. Yeah. What, what do you think drove you so much to want success in life? Uh, daddy issues. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, There's probably some people here yeah, with some daddy issues, yeah. so they can relate. Uh, no, um, <laughs> you know, growing up in uh, rural East Texas, you know, uh, we grew up out in the woods and, and everything. So just wanting to to strive to, I knew that there was always going to be a challenge. That you know, there was going to be one thing out there in my my life at some point. You know, I'm I'm the product of too many uh, action adventure movies as a kid. There's always that one conflict, that one one fight, and um, I knew that one day there's going to be something in my life, uh, whether it's war or an arrest or something that uh, that I'm preparing for, and uh, I didn't know it was going to be Paisley. Yeah. Talk to me about um, how you felt leading up to Paisley being born, and in just that that first couple of months of of Paisley's life, and that whole yeah. process you went through. Yeah. The you know I really viewed Paisley as a weakness uh, that came from me and uh the transition came along you know right after she was born that uh, people would ask well how's the baby and I was like well she poops pees and sleeps as good as any baby and it was the truth I've come to realize that Paisley was just like any other kid and I made the transition from realizing that down syndrome isn't my enemy it's society's perceptions of downs and just like uh you talk about uh up there um that the Lord doesn't look at the outward things but looks at the heart and that's what I say when I go to speak that um, when you change the way you look at things the things you look at change and I stopped viewing Paisley as a weakness uh, but somebody who you know had already overcome a lot to even make it into the world and has challenges to face uh, you know countless uh, struggles that she's going to face maybe the character and everything that I'd done was just preparing me to help Paisley reach her full potential 
why did, why did you start running with Paisley? I mean, what was, what was behind all of that initially? It was my one way of getting her out in the public and letting everyone see her and see that I was proud of her. And it was the one thing that she and I could do together, just uh, she and I, and, and share in that. And it was a way of getting her out in front of uh, other people who may someday go through the same struggle that I had gone through and realize that it's going to be okay. Uh, you know, you're going to have feelings, you're going to have doubts and all, but, uh, you know, you can come through it and uh, that everyone has value and has lessons to teach you. Talk to me about her potential. Uh, yeah, and that's, that's a question, you know, that um, she's taught me more uh, that success uh, is more of a subjective standard than an objective standard, that it's not about who gets to the finish line first, but how far you have to go to get there. Paisley more than likely will never invent the cure for cancer. I, I realize that. But Paisley has potential, and she has, can contribute to a society and, and has life lessons. You know, she's already taught me a ton. Um, so it's finding those, those life lessons and realizing that it's not, you know, about who gets to the finish line first, but how far you have to go to get there. Yeah. I know, I know Paisley's teaching a lot of lessons at the other campus because she is actually the greatest motivator for people to go into Coastal Kids and serve because she is the coolest kid on the face of the earth. And people are like, can I volunteer in Coastal Kids, but only in Paisley's room? So she is definitely, she's recruiting and she's maximizing her potential. Um, talk to me about how many marathons have you ran with Paisley up to this point? And, and there's a significant number in there that wasn't in the video, but I know it's significant to you. Yeah, Paisley and I ran uh, 12 marathons together. Uh, we ran one ultra marathon, 31 miles uh, from West Palm to Fort Lauderdale, where we placed second, and that's where ESPN kind of picked up on the story. We had tons of second place finishes in 5Ks and everything. Uh, we finally won a uh, 5K in our hometown in Texas, where ESPN came to, uh, to film it finally. Uh, but they finished on 321 miles of marathons, uh, which is significant because Down syndrome is the third replication of the 21st chromosome. Uh, so we picked that as a stopping point for, uh, for Paisley and I on our portion of the story. Yeah. Talk to me about the mohawk and yeah. uh, some of the other yeah. costumes <laughs> that uh, you wear for your runs. Yeah. ESPN did a good story job documenting everything, uh, but they never talked about the marathon. I mean, the mohawk up there. So... Uh, people are like, what's up with the, the mohawk, dude? Um, we've had that. I've dyed my hair pink before and had uh, my daughter rocks her extra chromosome. Um, <laughs> I grew a, a four-month beard and had a wig with American flag bandana for uh, Luck Dynasty was the name of our team that year. Um, and I say it's significant because you have to look at the extremes that I have to go to to stand out from 20,000 other runners. We all like to stand out and, you know, um, be recognized for our individuality, especially here uh, in Miami and South Florida. But um, that Paisley and the others that I run with now, they're born standing out. They're born being special, and it just, you know, it's in their DNA. And uh, just like we celebrate the latest fashion trends or those things that make uh, someone an individual, those things should be celebrated too. It's not something to be pitied or to look away from or feel bad about. It makes them individuals, and it's something they can be proud of. Talk to me about, there's two verses that are pretty significant to you and, and how they've changed over time. Uh, yeah, that, you know, a lot of runners have uh, Philippians 4.13 on their shirt. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, you know, and they have them on signs, you know, when we run. 
But I was always uh, more of a uh, 1 Corinthians 9.24. And that one's, uh, don't you know that all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run so as to get the prize. So, of course, he wasn't talking about the medal at the uh, end of the race, but uh, that's the way I like to think about it. <laughs> but uh, now... you're a winner with winner's blood. That's right. You know, yeah. Genetically superior genes. Yeah. They, they yeah. fit me so well. Yeah. Uh, those are skinny. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, that um, now, now I think about uh, Mark 9.33. And uh, paraphrasing in there that, uh, you know, they came to the house in Capernaum and uh, Jesus asked them what they had been arguing about on the road. And they'd been arguing about who was the greatest. And Jesus told them that, you know, don't you realize that whoever wants to be first has to be the very last and the servant of all. And uh, so now when I I run with Paisley and and others, it's not about being out in the front or being in the lead pack or, or my time that day. It's about the lessons that I can learn from that individual and, and the things that we can do to break down stereotypes and uh, barriers that are put up in front of them every day. Talk to me about some of the, the lessons that you've learned because you've really learned a lot, not just from Paisley, but some of the other people that you've ran with, like Jerome and Corey. And, and so tell me a little bit about the lessons that you've learned from, from all of those different experiences. Yeah, that uh, I stopped running with Paisley and... Uh, 2012 and that some people don't often understand it you know when she obviously enjoys it and I enjoyed it but I never gave Paisley the choice I always threw her in the chair and said this is something we're going to do and uh, at the time I didn't know what Paisley's potential I didn't know if she'd ever even walk but now she's completely ambulatory and you know able to to run and play and that you know here I was saying Paisley's just like any other kid but she was getting to do things that other kids weren't Uh, so I made the decision that I wanted to start running with uh, adults with disabilities who made the decision to get in into the chair and uh, I tell them that, you know, I'm just here to loan you my legs if you'll loan me your motivation because, you know, again, talking about perspective and, and changing your perspe- uh, perception that I don't view them uh, as weak individuals or somebody that needs my pity or, you know, needs me to take them out and run with them. You know, they're strong individuals who functioned in a society that wasn't designed to accommodate them. They've got more determination than I ever will just to get across the street and, and get on a bus. Um, so the first one uh, I ran in uh, 2013 with uh, a group of five individuals from an assisted living facility and uh, we're lined up getting ready to go and uh, Jerome, uh, he's quite a character is I guess the way to describe Jerome and uh, so his caregivers are off to the side and it's just me and him getting ready to start and we're singing the national anthem and it's going the rockets red glare, the bombs bursting in air and Jerome goes boom (laughs) and uh, throws his arms up and everything and everybody turns around to look at him and I'm responsible for Jerome. I, I need to kind of tone the, that's not the way we do it. And so I, I leaned over to, to tell him to t- tone it down, and I realized that, you know, despite the fact that I was in the military and been to combat and now in the FBI and had sworn to defend the Constitution, you know, numerous times, I had never sang the national anthem with as much enthusiasm as Jerome was just playing right there. And I'm sure that Francis Scott Key, if he had his choice between uh, the way I sang it or the way Jerome sang it, he would much prefer the way Jerome sang it. <laughs> so I realized, you know, and, and learned that day before I ever took my first step with somebody else was to, uh, you know, live my life with as much zeal or try to as, uh, as Jerome. Um, so I got a new chair and then uh, had it shipped up to uh, South Dakota and uh, ran with three individuals up there in, in the same, same way. And uh, the last person I ran with was Corey, a young man with cerebral palsy. And uh, at the completion of it, you know, congratulating each other and told me thanks for coming and thanks for having me and and on. And he said, uh, you know, I'm glad you came. I love you. 
And uh, I said, no, no, Corey, you know, thank, thanks for having me. You know, pat him on his back and left. And the whole ride, bus ride back to the hotel and then on the plane, I was like, why could Corey tell me he loved me and I couldn't tell Corey that I loved him back? You know, here's a 30, 32-year-old man with cerebral palsy and, you know, 40 years old, and I couldn't tell him. I did. I trained. I, you know, went through the training and flew up there and everything. I loved him as a Christian brother. But for some reason, I, I couldn't tell him. So I came back, and I wrote an email back to the church and to Corey and said, Corey, I do love you, and you taught me a lot about expressing myself. So uh, those are just a couple of the, the lessons and yeah. that I've gotten. What is what has God personally taught you throughout this entire process? If you could kind of sum it up in one or two things for, uh, for probably people. the biggest thing is um, maybe surrender and, and humility, like you talked about about David trying to uh, to solve the problem. Yeah, that's my wife. If you tell me the problem, I'm going to try and solve it. I'm not here just to listen, you know. And so that's the biggest thing with Paisley is that I viewed it as a problem. Uh, but no matter how much studying, logic, reasoning, I. There was an answer uh, to be found. And so finally it was in surrender to that that I realized that she wasn't a problem and that, you know, she's not my weakness, that she's my strength. And, uh, you know, I've come to realize that with my girls. We, I have four daughters now between eight and one. Uh, so there's two things I'm good at, pushing a wheelchair and making little girls. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but that uh, just how they don't understand why they can't have a cookie for breakfast I don't under, didn't understand why God uh, gave me Paisley, but I'm starting. It's starting to come around. I'm starting to get the picture, and uh, that uh, you know she wasn't a curse. She's a blessing. Yeah. The one thing I love about his story is he's allowed what he perceived initially to be a mess to become his message to the world. And uh, this is what I believe for all of us is that it. It's never too late for us to become the man or woman that God is calling us to be. But it starts with, will we humble ourselves enough and will we learn from where we've been and what we've done? Because there's no mistake, there's no problem, there's no situation that is too great for God. The only thing that keeps us from becoming is ourselves and our lack of Humility and saying, man, I don't have it all figured out. But you know what? There is a God who created this heavens and the universe who's got it all figured out. And if I'll just surrender all of this stuff to him, then he can change everything in my life. And this is what I know is that I know that David was a man after God's own heart. That's what the Bible tells us. And he made a whole bunch of mistakes. And, and Heath is definitely a man after God's own heart. And, and I know he's made mistakes in life as well. The question today is, will you be a man or woman after God's own heart? You can make mistakes, but it's what are you going to do with those? Are you going to humble yourselves and admit where you are? And then are you going to learn from those things and become the person that God's called you to be? Let's pray. God, we just come before you and we just thank you for who you are and what you're doing. God, I just pray right now that I know that there's probably some people in here that have messed up some areas of their lives, that they've jacked up some different situations. And God, today, more than anything, you want to do something new, and you want to do something fresh in their life. But I truly, truly believe that it starts with us 
humbling ourselves. And maybe the first place that we need to humble ourselves is we need to admit that as much as we've tried, as hard as we've pursued being successful in life, we realize that we can never achieve that on our own. We still screw things up. We still mess things up. In essence, we sin. And so maybe today we need to humble ourselves and say, you know what, today is the day that I need to make Christ the Lord of my life. Today is the day that I need to make Jesus the center of everything. And I need to lay down my pride and say, God, I can't do it without you. And maybe you're in here today with every head bowed and every eye closed. Maybe that's you. And you need to pray this prayer in your heart as I pray it out loud. That that God, man, I've jacked up some areas of my life. I've messed up some different situations. But today I recognize that I need you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I recognize that you died on the cross so that I could have life and I could have it more abundantly. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for rising again. God, I pray right now that we would humble ourselves before you. That we would recognize when we lay down those things that there is a freedom that comes into our lives. That allows us to learn from those situations to become the person that you've called us to become. God, I pray that you would challenge all of us to look introspectively and assess our lives, and God, and then respond to your great love and your great mercy. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.